thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. In today's episode of History's Hook, we are going to explore the extraordinary life of Jermaine Logan. Born into slavery in Davidson County, Tennessee, to an enslaved mother and her white owner, Logan would eventually be moved to Murray County, Tennessee, before he finally made his escape from slavery to the north. He eventually settled in upstate New York, where his efforts to assist the enslaved out of bondage made him known as the king of the Underground Railroad. Recent scholarship is leading Logan to becoming one of the great names associated with early civil rights in America. Today, I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Joanne McClellan, who is the Murray County historian and president of the African American Heritage Society. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are joined remotely by Dr. Angela Murphy. Dr. Murphy is a professor of history at Texas State University, specializing in mid-19th century social reform movements of the United States and the Atlantic world, with an emphasis on anti-slavery, Ireland, and sectional politics in the United States. Besides teaching, she's a prolific writer. Among her works is The Jerry Rescue, The Fugitive Slave Law, Northern Rights, and the American Sectional Crisis, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. She is currently writing a full-length biography of Jermaine Logan, the subject of today's discussion. Dr. Angela Murphy, welcome to History's Hook. Thanks so much. Before we embark upon Jermaine Logan's incredible story, let's start our conversation with a summation of sorts. Dr. Murphy, what is Jermaine Logan's greatest legacy? Why should we know his story in the 21st century? (laughs) Um, Well, there's a number of reasons, but um, probably what he's most well known for, you mentioned he was known as the Underground Railroad King. He escaped from enslavement himself and ran one of the most open underground railroad stations, if you will, um, in Syracuse, even advertising his address in the newspaper, inviting, um, very defiantly inviting um, fugitives to stop at his house um, where his whole family got involved in providing aid to them. Um, And so that's probably what he's most well known for, but he, his contributions are pretty vast beyond that. He was a minister Uh, He set up churches, he set up schools, he encouraged education, he worked for suffrage reform, uh, promoting the black vote. He became involved with um, aid to freed people after the Civil War. Um, He raised black troops during the Civil War. Um, He worked with a lot of very famous people, people you've probably heard of, um, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, John Brown. Um, Ed Garrett Smith, who is maybe less well-known, but another big abolitionist in New York State. Um, so he was really plugged into a very um, active network of reform in upstate New York. So he has a lot of contributions, but I would say probably if I had to single out one, it's his Underground Railroad activity. 
it's really an incredible story uh, and that it starts in this space where we're located in Middle Tennessee and then goes far beyond. This is one of those many stories that Joanne and I uh, uncover regularly that start here at the local level and just expand way beyond the bounds of, of uh, Murray County, Middle Tennessee. His contributions are nationally significant. And I'm hoping through work like yours, uh, Dr. Murphy, and your writing, that his name becomes synonymous with the Frederick Douglasses out there, because I think I think his contributions and the means in which he accomplished them are incredibly significant and, and noteworthy. Uh, for me, as I study Logan's life, I can't help but place his mother front and center in terms of mm-hmm. understanding his life and his legacy. Her experiences and how she navigated enslavement most certainly impacted and helped shape Germaine's outlook on life. Let's talk about her for just a little bit. And that's sort of the beginning of his story, of course. Germaine's mother is remembered with the name Cherry, but it appears that was not her birth name. What do we know about her early life? Um, so her birth name was Jane. Um, and actually, in the biography I'm writing, I refer to her as Jane, since that was her birth name. And Cherry was the name that was given to her once she became enslaved. Um, and so even though throughout the records, you'll see her referred to as Cherry. Um, when I write about her, I, I always think of her as, and, write, and write about her as Jane. Um, but it's really fairly tragic. She was born free in Ohio. Um, and she was kidnapped when she was seven years old. And um, she was, he tells the story actually, um, Logan does, Jermaine Logan, in his, um, he writes his slave and freedom narrative. And he, his mother's front and center in, in that narrative. You can tell the impact on his life. Um, and so he starts with this story of her being kidnapped by slave traders and transported into Kentucky. You know, the traders are traveling through Kentucky selling. They're all children that they kidnapped, selling them off along the way um, until they reached Tennessee. And Eleanor Loeb, um, who was living in Davidson County, Tennessee at the time, she's a widow, um, purchases her. Um, and he she joins this family of the Loeb's with Eleanor, the mother, uh, her three sons, um, David, Manasseh and Carnes and two daughters. And she um, is enslaved by them. And it's fairly tragic. It talks about how they were pretty kind to her when they first brought her home um, until she started trying to tell them that she was born free and she at home somewhere else. And then they beat her and told her, you can never tell anybody this. And from now on, your name will be Cherry and you must never speak of your past. Um, and she, she learned very quickly that she had to comply in order to survive. Um, and then once she's part of that household, as she grows up, her she becomes the concubine of the youngest son, David Logue. Um, and together they have a number of children, including Jermaine. And so David Logue is Jermaine Logan's father. Um, but it was interesting. I was kind of looking at her story in Ohio. It appears in Ohio, um, slavery was had just been, it, Ohio had just been made a state when she was kidnapped. I think it was 1802. Three maybe, um, and uh, they is or eighteen oh seven. I don't have the dates wrong, but um, but it had just become a free state. It had been free territory before that, um, but there were still black indentured servants, very common in the area, and children were often indentured to white families, really almost as a way to keep them safe from slave catchers. And she was unlucky enough to be kind of grabbed um, and taken. Um, so. That's her background. And then he, like I said, Logan like places her front and center in his story. His 
first few chapters of his narrative are very much about his mother and how much he admired her and how she didn't break under slavery. She had to, you know, do what she had to do, but she also was very, she stood up for herself to the extent that she could. And he tried to model his own behavior on hers to the extent that he could throughout his whole life. She had a pretty distinctive response to the physical and mental abuse that she underwent. Uh, There was an increased anger and very much a sense of resistance, I think, um, uh, to the, he, he mentions in his narrative, uh, a number of occasions, uh, one I remember where she's sort of overseeing a distillery operation that they have, and she's, uh, confronted, uh, by, uh, an obviously drunk white man who makes aggressive gestures towards her and she fights back, physically fights back and beats him unconscious and then tells <laughs> tells uh, yeah. the, the logs what what happened yeah she does she's defending her honor <laughs> um she and she was able to get away with it because she was seen as david Logue's mistress at the time and so the logs would protect her from this advance was part of it um part of it is the guy didn't want that she beat up didn't pursue it because he's probably a little embarrassed <laughs> by the incident but yeah she she resists him he comes at her and she is able to knock him out. She thought she killed him. She goes and tells the Logue family that she's killed this guy. He wasn't dead. He was injured severely, um, but she is not punished. And um, she, so part of that is because, you know, in the community in Tennessee at the time, um, relationships between the white owners and enslaved women were often very much out in the open and seen as is kind of normal relationships. So it's a frontier society. And um, she was seen as David Logue's mistress by the community at the time. And so this guy had like kind of trespassed on David Logue's property in a way. So that's one reason why she was protected. Um, But she did also um, kind of rise up in defiance. Another occasion too, when um, there's an occasion where Jermaine is being whipped by one of uh, a slave driver somewhere and she like chases him away from her son. So she like, she has her limbs of what she'll take. Um, and he really respected that about her. She was very, very strong. Uh, what I yeah. thought was unusual was her role in the distillery because it appears that she was like assigning tasks and she was really running this mm-hmm. distillery. That was unusual yeah. for uh, a slave in the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So she she kind of managed distillery operations there. She had so in Tennessee, slavery was very much um, you didn't have the big giant plantations that a lot of people associate with slavery in central Tennessee at the time because it was a frontier society. And so a lot of times it was a little bit more informal and people that were enslaved were given all kinds of different jobs and often were given kind of managerial type responsibilities. Later on, you'll have Jermaine Logan doing um kind of kind of becoming the right-hand man of Manassas once he's down in Maury County. Um, so it was a little bit, I don't want to say, I don't want to give the impression that it wasn't harsh because it was harsh, but it was a little more flexible in the kind of jobs and duties that a lot of enslaved people had in, in, in the frontier areas. But she was directing male slaves, and that's what I thought was unusual. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's probably true, yeah. I haven't even really thought about it from that perspective. So Jane... Um, Jane and Dave had how many children together besides Jermaine um, or Jarm, well, as he was had, called early on? They had three. Um, 
And then there's more that are along the way. Some of them aren't counted. Um, but I know that they had um, three. He had there were three by the time he was sold away. But there were more brothers and sisters later on. So, but it's vague. It's in the record, so I, I can't put an exact number on it. But I know that he had at least one half brother. He had two sisters that were born before him, and then I know that he had two younger siblings after him. But it's there's no clear accounting because of the way the records were. Um. By his account, life, although harsh, was kind of familial, where Dave is the father figure, uh, Jane or Cherry is the mother figure, he has siblings, they are enslaved, they're working in a manner that only enslaved people would, um, that there's sort of this familial relationship, but that all changes when Dave sells his entire family away. He gets married to a white woman, and then he sells away this entire family to his brother Manasseh. And that's when they moved to Murray County, Tennessee. What is that change like for Jermaine? It was huge. I mean, in his narrative, he talks about when he, as you mentioned, it was very, um, when he was, he was, he didn't even realize his position as an enslaved person in um, Davidson County when he was very young until he came across his mother crying after a beating one day and she warned him. She's like, you can't mention this to any of, you know, to David or Manasseh or Carnes, because once they know, you know, about our situation, they'll treat you differently because they had promised to free. And it wasn't that uncommon to free their own children with in, um, these enslaved women. They had promised that David had promised he would, um, but things changed for him. Um, one, because he does marry this white woman, Polly Gasco, and he once he does that, he finds like a, uh, a enslaved person at a nearby plantation to pair up Jane with so that there's like a father figure for the children. Um, and so um, he does that. He starts distancing himself. Things do get harsher for Jermaine there. Um, but really what happens is he sells his family members. He breaks that promise. He breaks the promise not to separate Henry and Jane, um, who he paired her off with. And he breaks the promise not to set, that he will set their, his children free because of financial difficulties. Um, he had a lot of creditors come at him all at once, and he had to liquidate all of his assets, um, including his family members. And he sold all of his enslaved laborers um, to a slave dealer that was going to take them to a market in Alabama. And out of the goodness of his heart, in his opinion, anyway, um, he insisted that his family members be sold to his brother Manasseh, who was on the way going south. Um, but Manasseh and his wife, Sarah, were much crueler um, masters uh, than even Dave had been. Um, David always treated Jermaine kind of special, even if as he grew more distant and harsh with um, with Jane. But Manasseh, you know, he had to immediately learn how to work in the fields. There were very, very harsh punishments if he did anything wrong. He was beaten. He watched his mother being beaten. It was much more of your kind of what you would think of, of an enslaved experience there. Um, and so he was really as a, you know, preteen through um, his early 20s, he was at that plantation and it was an extremely harsh reality for him he was in an area called bigbyville in murray county which is is still sort of just just a little crossroads 
um, community, uh, and that that was the location. There are right. a couple of heartrending descriptions in his narrative uh, of his siblings being sold away and watching his mm-hmm. mother being manacled and screaming after them as the children are being being driven away. And yeah. you get a sense of what a fierce mother she is uh, at that point in time. Uh, I, you know, we can't imagine in our 21st century mindset what that's got to be like for a parent to, to watch that happen and have no control whatsoever. But again, that, that must have just a huge impact on Jermaine and his life. When does he begin formulating the idea that escape is necessary? So he's, it, it comes up, whenever he is punished and, and, and such, he's like in his mind, he's always looking for an opportunity, but it feels hopeless to him. He doesn't know enough about how to escape or where to go. Um, but then when he is in his, just as he becomes an adult, he is mortgaged out to a family called that. He gives them a pseudonym called the Prestons. That's about 15 miles away um, from Manassas plantation. Um, and he's mortgaged at Manassas did this, before she did this a number of times where he would basically take a loan from someone and instead of interest he would send Jermaine to or his mother or whoever he was working with to to the labor would stand in for interest until he could repay the loan so he would go work until he could replay this loan to the Prestons so he was mortgaged out to this family that he called the Prestons um, and the Prestons were fairly um, unique for the area um, Preston says he has anti-slavery views. He wants Logan to be treated more of a, like a hired hand. He's very plugged into um, the evangelical revivals of the period. Um, he basically um, takes Logan in, and Logan feels like he becomes part of that family. He's allowed um, to learn all kinds of um, skills there. He's allowed to learn to read. He hangs out with the children. He eats the same meals as them. Um, he plays games with them. And he starts to feel very comfortable, like this is a new life. But then Manasseh comes and repays the loan and brings him back. And he's like, I'm not going back to what I had to go through before. Um, and so he is returned to the low plantation. But from that moment on, he's really set about starting to make a plan of escape at that point. He meets um, some other um, enslaved laborers in nearby plantations, and together they start gathering resources and information. Um, they make friends with a poor white man um, who needs money to write him a pass, a travel pass, so that they can make an escape. It takes him a couple, like 18 months at least, to get the plan together, but he does make that determination that he's not going to be a slave after he's had this experience of being treated if not exactly as an equal, at least as a human being. So, Which is key to his thinking moving forward. Um, uh, Manasseh uh, manages an escape. He leaves with another enslaved man named John Farney, who steal horses and make their escape on uh, Christmas Eve, 1834. Do they have a goal from the outset? What, what, where are they heading? So, yeah, Jermaine gets together with John Barney. Um, the original idea, they had gained some knowledge about Illinois. But anyway, they end up basically heading for the Ohio River, which they know is the border between slavery and freedom. And so um, they head up north. They go through Nashville. They, they head up through Kentucky. They have all kinds of close encounters on the way with people trying to, um, to stop them. 
Um, and they eventually get to the Ohio River. They cross the Ohio River. In, um, and uh, once they're in, as I think Indiana is where they end up, they, um, they find out that they're still in trouble, right? But even though they're in a free state, slave captors can catch them and send them back into slavery. So like all of a sudden they think they're free, they're celebrating, and they're like, oh, no, the goal's changed. Now we got to go to Canada. So they keep going on their journey north. But he and John Farney. John Farney, by the way, um, I did a little research into his situation, and he was similar to Manasseh. And I, we didn't really get into this, but Manasseh had a real drinking problem, and that was one reason why he was so cruel to. He, whenever he and his wife drank, things were much worse for their enslaved laborers. Same with John Farney and John Farney's um, owner, whose name was also John Farney, which confuses things, but. <laughs> His, uh, he um, basically his wife had died and had left ownership. They had been her enslaved laborers from her family. She left ownership to her children and not her husband because she worried about his drinking and him, you know, not being able to take care of the property. And so he was going to run away with them to Indian country. That's what he said. And once he just announced that, that's when. Um, the enslaved John Farney decides to make the escape with Jermaine. So. Was it was there something significant about them escaping on Christmas Eve? Yeah, it's because um, I think that there were actually it was fairly common to try to arrange it around holidays because people were distracted by merrymaking. They were distracted by the holidays. They were doing their own thing, and people were maybe more mobile as well. Like once he does cross the Ohio River, there are some white people waiting on the other side of the river watching them cross. And then um, they, they're they waiting. To, they're going to seize them and take them back and, and sell them back into slavery if they can. But then they see the two men celebrating, and they're shooting guns in the sky, which is really unusual. The guy that sold them the passes also gave them guns. And they're like, okay, an enslaved person would never have a gun. And they're just celebrating. And they were probably on holiday visiting relatives and that's why they're going back and forth so there was a little bit more mobility during the holidays but there's also people who are just kind of doing their own thing and not paying as much attention we need to take our first break we're going to continue with this harrowing story of Jermaine logan you're listening to history's hook don't go away history's hook with your host tom price will be right back after this brief commercial break At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hello. This is Rick Tillis with Tillis Jewelry in Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. What are you looking for in a jeweler? Knowledgeable staff? Experienced goldsmiths? Or true custom designers? Experienced working with clients creating that perfect gift for a special loved one? Well, you have found them. Tillis Jewelry. We are this and so much more. Check us out at TillisJewelry.com or on Facebook and Instagram to see our latest creations. Tillis Jewelry. Columbia and Lewisburg, Tennessee. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. 
Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me, painfree.com, or call 615-551-9224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we are discussing the incredible life of Jermaine Logan, a man who started off as an enslaved man uh, in Middle Tennessee and makes his escape to Canada before settling in upstate New York and eventually becoming known as the King of the Underground Railroad. We have joining us today Dr. Angela Murphy from Texas State University. Dr. Murphy, before the break, we were talking about Jermaine and how he's making his escape from Middle Tennessee into Canada. There were two things that kind of struck me as interesting. One, you mentioned they were given guns. Uh, They were moving quite freely. They had passes that allowed them to go, but they got some advice along the way, which was interesting to me, that they ought to stay in high-end establishments because if they didn't, people were more likely to think of them as runaway slaves rather than just perhaps free people of color who were passing through the the space. I found that incredibly interesting that they would take that. That was a very bold stance. Yeah, they took that advice for the first few days of their journey until they were basically accosted by people that demanded their passes and um, wanted to seize them and they had to fight for their lives. And then they were much more furtive after that. They kind of kept to the back roads. They stopped staying in out in the open, but the idea was to hold yourself like a free person. And if you act confident about it, you're less likely to be challenged. The other thing that struck me is they were helped along the way. Do we know whether there was an underground railroad network at that point in time that that is helping them along their path. I know there was a Quaker group that was helping um, uh, enslaved people to get to the North as well. And they, they benefit from them. Yeah. So in Tennessee and Kentucky, they were pretty much on their own. Once they cross the Ohio river, there is a network in place that they made use of. Um, there was a mixture of um Black helpers, and there were Quaker communities that jumped in there, too. One of the things about the Underground Railroad is really the backbone of it were three Black people that brought people into their homes and directed them, and many of them former fugitives themselves. Um, But they did have friendly Quakers um, that helped as well. So um, John and Jermaine, on their journey as they're going um, north, Um, they make use of both types of communities and they basically kind of, there is a network in place where they go to one place and they send them to another. And, um, there's like a progression along the way. Um, and so, um, they had a lot of 
people take them in and help them along along the way. It's quite his um, his narrative. Really, it's quite the adventure story if you read his published narrative on the events of his escape um, and eventually crossing over um, in Detroit into Canada. But along the way, there's a lot of a lot of ups and downs. It's an amazing story, which is available online for our listeners that they'd like to to be able to read his narrative. So as you said, they cross uh, at Detroit into Canada. And one of the first tasks he does after finding work is education. Education becomes a key component in Jermaine Logan's life. Oh, and by the way, he changes his name from Logue, L-O-G-U-E, to Logan, L-O-G-U-E-N. So he cha- changes right. his name. So if people are confused why we're going to back Jermaine and forth. And Wesley as a middle name because he had been um, helped by a Methodist family. So and for John Wesley. For John so Wesley. Jermaine Wesley Logan, yeah. So, so talk to us a little bit about education. How did, how did this uh, fugitive slave embark on an education? So he settles in, in Canada in a place called Hamilton. He ends up having to kind of go east, and he ends up um, in Hamilton with a family that kind of plugs him into a kind of a Sunday school network where he learns his letters and learns how to read. Um, and he tries to get by kind of in Canada for a time. He's fairly successful um, farming, but then he loses his Medicaid partners with somebody that was in debt, and their debtors come and take everything. So... Um, he crosses from Canada into Rochester, New York, and that's really where his education begins. He works at a place called Rochester House, which is a um, hotel on the Erie Canal. He meets up with um, a guy that's himself um, been availed of some education at a place called the Oneida Institute um, in upstate New York, which is a biracial school that um, was very reformist-oriented, a lot of abolitionists there, black and white. Um, and he goes to that school and he gets a full education there. And for him, education and promotion of black rights go hand in hand. Um, that in order to have both black uplift for his community, they need to be educated, but also education in order um, to advance all kinds of reforms as well. He writes so himself, knowledge is power and the only means whereby we shall be efficiently to contend for our rights and to enjoy them when secured. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, he sets up schools. That's one of the, the first things he does is he embarks on setting up black schools throughout upstate New York in a number of different towns. It's so, interesting. He doesn't graduate from Oneida Institute. Oneida. Uh, right. Um, but obviously he has the ability to start schools. There's an administrative side of him that obviously he's very adept at. Uh, and then you know, not finishing his education. I think there's kind of a native genius in him to a degree. His writing speaks volumes about his uh, depth of thought on any number of subjects. It's interesting. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening in upstate New York. You've mentioned a number of reform movements. It's kind of a hotbed for a lot of different reform movements. He's he's here. We're talking about in the, in the 1870s, or I'm sorry, the late 1830s at this point. Um, what's going on in upstate New York at this point in time? So you, you have, it's called the Burned Over District in that area, all along the Erie Canal, which has just been built, kind of connecting New York City to the West. All along the Erie Canal, you have kind of reformers moving. And you, you know, it's the Second Great Awakening, a lot of evangelical reforms. That puts pushes people in the North, anyway, into a direction of trying to um, reform and perfect American society. And part of that is an attack on slavery. Part of it is the temperance movement, um, encouraging the building of schools, encouraging Bible reading, 
Um, so there's this just ferment of reform all along the Erie Canal. And of course, he comes into Rochester and Oneida, and he ends up in Syracuse all along that, in that right in the middle of all of that. And so he could he could hardly not be influenced by all that. He does say he didn't really know about any of this until he gets into New York, and then he's just kind of swept into it. And that becomes the center of his life as soon as he gets to New York as a young man. He, he becomes associated with sort of the big names that we remember uh, in this yeah. time period with some of those reform movements. Women's rights, of course, is coming about. So he's connected to some of those early female pioneers in, in women's rights. But Frederick Douglass becomes a close associate of him. Uh, the two sort of have these parallel lives going on. Yet Frederick Douglass is really very much remembered. Why is Logan not so much remembered in, um, in the same that's, way? I mean, that's actually a really good question. So Logan and him are... Uh, Logan and Douglas are very much connected. In fact, Logan's daughter marries Douglas's son, um, and they work together. And Logan is always writing kind of reports for Frederick Douglass's newspapers. They work together on the Underground Railroad. Frederick Douglass was very much um, a national figure. He becomes a national figure. He's He allies early on with the Garrisonian abolitionists, the American Anti-Slavery Society, and that kind of became his role is to be kind of this figurehead um, for black abolitionists and his. And so there are, but there are a lot of other black abolitionists that were not as famous as him. Um, a lot of times when we people that are scholars call it the Frederick Douglass problem because everybody knows about Frederick Douglass, but there's right. all these other people he worked with. Right. And it was influenced by actually um, that are lesser known for Logan. I think it's because his focus was always on the black community, um, his local black community. A lot of his work were, was very, um, New York state. He traveled around the towns there. He brought people into his home there, providing aid to his community. Um, and so he was very locally oriented, whereas Douglas was much more expansive and, um, had kind of this national following as a famous black person. And they both are, you know, they both have their roles, right? There's, there's, a, there's need for both kinds of personalities in that movement. Um, so, yeah, it's not saying Frederick Douglass shouldn't be celebrated because he absolutely should, but there are a lot of other, especially black abolitionists that people don't know the names of that they should. One of the things I'm, I'm aiming at trying to get this book published in this new series at Yale called um, Black Lives, and they are trying to kind of uncover these voices of, of lesser known black figures in history. Um, and, and they're, they're starting to do so. And so it's going to be a great series. Hopefully, hopefully it will be accepted there. It's under review right now. So I, be, I believe that Logan's name is going to become much more influential as, as time yeah. goes on, as the research that you're uncovering and, and other scholars as well come to understand him a little bit more. He and Douglas yeah. uh, opened an integrated school in Ithaca, New York, between 1846 and 1848. Uh, I know Logan in his various speaking circuits, Frederick Douglass is sometimes raising money for him and introducing him as a speaker as well. So I, I love the connection between the two. That's a yeah. that's an important distinction that you make, that, yeah. that, that he's a little bit more locally focused, Logan, uh, yeah. versus um, uh, Douglas, who's, who's really doing a lot At more At least traveling. before the Civil War. After the Civil War, Logan, if he had lived longer, I think that we might. I mean, he, he kind of takes more of a national stage, but he, he dies in 1872, so um, kind of was cut short. So. Let's talk about religion for just a minute, and Logan, that's a, such a big part of his life. So we've talked about mm -hmm. him uh, as a, a, a an educated man, uh, starting schools for uh, for black children, but religion is a huge part of, of his life as well. What is his religious affiliation? Where does it come from? And where does it, where does it lead him? 
So he first, but kind of in his heart, you know, becomes more connected with religion when he's living with the Preston family that I mentioned earlier, because they're a religious family. But he was never really affiliated with a church until he became involved with black churches. Um, he thought the black churches were too hypocritical on the issue of slavery. He was right, actually. Um, so he becomes involved with the American Methodist, Meth- not American, excuse me, African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion. Um, which is a black church that was actually fairly, um, it was, it was, had a strong presence in upstate New York. In fact, uh, Douglas actually went to that church um, as well. Um, and he becomes a minister with that church and eventually rises to the position of becoming a bishop in the church. Um, and so he was like that quintessential preacher politician um, where you're marrying um, your religious leadership with political leadership trying to encourage black rights. And he uses it as a platform, um, not just to, you know, as a minister, but also as somebody that's promoting um, black equality and the end of slavery. And that's a, an important distinction for him. He's, he's very articulate on the point of freedom as it relates to both religion and to politics. Uh, he mm-hmm. he sees the injustice of slavery, and I, and I guess maybe that's a distinction too. His his very defined viewpoints on justice and injustice, and what mm-hmm. slavery means to all of that. Slavery to him is a threat to a Republican government. He wrote, God wills that all men should enjoy life, liberty, and whatever happiness this earth can afford. But to a certain extent, we are the architects of our social enjoyments and political fortunes. Our Heavenly Father has given us the means, and it remains for us to use them for the promotion of our liberty. So there's a real marriage going on between his ideals with religion and uh, the American experiment. Um, yeah, in fact, he sees it as like a religious duty to to stand up for yourself. Like, that God has created you, you're a God's person, that you behave like God's person, and you don't let anybody make you subservient. And so, um, in fact, um, you know, he refuses to purchase his own freedom because he says, God gave me my freedom. I'm not paying any man for my freedom. And so his religious ideology really comes through in almost all of his statements. I mean, you can really see he truly is this evangelical kind of um, minister, and it infuses everything he says and does. So that's a huge thing that you just mentioned, such a big part of this story, that he refuses to buy his own freedom. So that's mm-hmm. a common thing that happens. We have other examples. Edmund Kelly is another from Murray County who, who goes on to, to become quite well-known in New England uh, as, a, as a former uh, enslaved man, uh, writes his slave narrative as well, but he buys his freedom. He buys the freedom mm-hmm. of his wife and children. They use that opportunity in, in their gaining freedom to benefit their family members as well. Jermaine Logan is different. He's refusing he different. to he's refusing yeah. to buy his freedom because yeah. of his viewpoint on slavery and religion as well that it, God gave him the right to live. No man has the right to own another man and he sticks to his guns. Talk talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, so in fact, like purchasing freedom was fairly common and there were debates about it among the abolitionists. Um Frederick Douglass had people purchase his freedom for him. Um, And he said, you know, it's the only way I can do the work is to be safe. Um, And um, and, but he also downplayed the fact that other people purchased it for him and he didn't purchase his own Um, because there's a real kind of question about it. Logan, part of the reason he said, God gave me my freedom. But part of the reason I would argue is he used his position as a fugitive. He wanted to maintain his status as a fugitive from slavery to make a political point. Um, He was saying 
you know, I here I am, look how accomplished I am, and still I'm unsafe. Um, and so he, it, rhetorically, he was kind of putting his life out there as an example of the vulnerability of the Black population. And, and so he refused to purchase his freedom. He had an opportunity to purchase his mother's freedom. And Manasseh Logue said, as part of the price, you have to purchase your own because you basically stole yourself from me and he refuses, even though his mother had to remain in slavery at that point. Um, and then later on, um, you know, he has he has some other opportunities as well. People want to raise money to purchase his freedom uh, when the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 is passed, when he's in danger from this Jerry rescue, and he always refuses. So, it's an incredible part of the story, sort of a, a sad secondary outcome that his mother would remain enslaved as a result of of that hard stance that he takes. So you have to appreciate what that means for him because he's constantly in jeopardy. And as you said, the fugitive slave law at 1850 sort of changes the game. It makes him a marked man yeah. as a fugitive slave, as this man right. who's out in the community, who's built schools, who's built churches, who's who's openly advertising his home as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Now, he's remembered, yeah. or it's thought by historians, that he, he passed about 1,500 people through his home, uh, fugitive yeah. slaves, through his home, he advertised it. I mean, that's yeah. mind-blowing to me, right? I mean, the, the only way that the Underground Railroad can work is through secrecy. You are, moving, you are moving people secretly out of the South into the North, and he's advertising his home as a stop. Yeah, he trusted his colleagues in Syracuse. There was a big um, fugitive slave rescue there that he was involved in. Um, they basically said, we are a sanctuary city, if you will. We will now allow no fugitive um, to be taken here, and a man named Jerry Logan participated in the effort to free him. Um, he had to run to Canada after that because he was under threat of arrest himself. Um, but he eventually is kind of coached back to the United States, back to Syracuse by friends saying, we're going to have your back. We protect you. And he believed them, and they did have his back. They never did take a, any kind of fugitive in Syracuse. Which is incredible. Um, so, and, and allows him to yeah. make that political statement, which is so important and uh, in, in, uh really affected me that in America, he had to run to Canada, which is run by a monarch, to enjoy the freedom that's promised in America, um, that he had to go to Canada for a time because of the fugitive slave law. He gets to choose, or doesn't get to, he chooses to come back to New York knowing that his life was still in jeopardy by doing so. We have to take our second break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jermaine Logan, an incredible story. You're listening to History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. 
I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hubs for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. First responders know seconds count when saving lives, and emergency response can often be delayed due to difficulty navigating rural locations, congested subdivisions, mobile home parks, and apartment complexes. The Locator 911 is a unique life-saving bulb. In normal use, a porch light, and when activated by you, a multicolored flashing beacon for first responders to help them find you in the event of an emergency. For more information, stop by your local fire department or visit thelocator911.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the incredible story of Jermaine Logan, who started his life in Middle Tennessee, later becoming the king of the Underground Railroad. I'm Tom Price. I'm joined by Joanne McClellan and our special guest, Dr. Angela Murphy of Texas State University. Dr. Murphy, uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the fugitive slave law and how that impacted Jermaine Logan as a fugitive slave himself. Give us a, a little bit about what the fugitive slave law said. Okay, so there, there, had, there had been an earlier fugitive slave law gave slave owners the right to go north and retrieve fugitives from slavery. This is written in the Constitution. There was a 1793 law. In 1850, a new fugitive slave law was passed that basically made the federal government a slave catcher. They put in this bureaucracy in place um, that supported slave owners um, that wanted to go and catch fugitives and bring them back into slavery. And it made it um, illegal to shelter a fugitive. There was a big stiff fine. If you didn't, if you were like basically deputized and said, go catch that fugitive, and you said no. You could go to jail or pay a fine in the northern states as well. So it was a much more aggressive attempt to return fugitives. And so that happened in 1850. Um, and so, of course, Logan is feeling extremely vulnerable after that act. And he gets he amps up his Underground Railroad activity. And most of his activities throughout the 1850 are really centered on um, protesting this law and providing aid to fugitives um, so they could get to safety. I love his denunciation of the new law was succinct. He wrote... It outlaws me, and I outlaw mm-hmm. it. It's a great, <laughs> yes. great yes. quote. I love it so much. Um, 
talk about his Underground Railroad activities and how it affected his family. He he had six mm-hmm. children eventually, right? A, a wife. Well, tell us a little bit about her and, and his family and, and what, what it meant to be a stop on the Underground Railroad. Yeah, so he spent a lot of his time traveling around, speaking against the Fugitive Slave Law and raising funds to help support his activities. And so really... Um, he did aid when he was at home, but really his wife, Caroline, and his children uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting for the Underground Railroad. People came um, by, they brought him in, they nursed him back to health if they were sick, they had collected food and clothing for them, um, they let them stay in their house until they could direct them somewhere else where they would be safe. Um, Logan often provided um, performed marriage rites so that they could formalize marriages um, for those coming through the town. Um, there, I mean, we have limited time, but there's a lot of stories uh, about his interactions that give you a sense of his personality. Um, but when I talk about Logan's underground railroad activity, I really talk about it as a family affair. And one of the points I like to make is we often think of like the household or domestic life as like part of the private sphere, but for black households that aided fugitives, their household was a political space. It was part of the public sphere. They were they are protesting the government by their actions in their home, and it dominated every waking day of their life. That's incredible. Syracuse yeah. was a haven, uh, a sanctuary city in essence, but it was tested there with one mm-hmm. pretty high-profile uh, case where a fugitive slave who had been living there for some time uh, was captured. Uh, it became known right. as the Jerry Rescue. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. And so I've written a book on that. So if anybody wants to all the details on it, but um, yeah, so Jerry was taken captive. um, And during the hearing, basically there is the town comes together under the leadership of black and white abolitionists in the town. Um, Logan was one of the leaders um, and they rescue him. They basically um, just cut to the chase. They end up breaking down the walls of the police station where he's held and pulling him out and hiding him until they could get him to Canada. Um, The action was planned by what was called a vigilance committee that had been put in place. They had a biracial vigilance committee after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in Syracuse that was made up of black and white um, citizens of Syracuse, including Logan. So he was part of the planning of it. Um, There's debate about whether he was in the building or not during the rescue or outside watching the rescue. Um, during the trials afterwards, he's accused, basically, people arrested uh, for violating the fugitive slave law, but he's arrested for attempted murder because two people say that he pushed him down the stairs um, during the rescue, which he denied. And he had witnesses saying he was outside of the building. Um, and so that's why after the rescue, he, he, is, he does go to Canada um, for about seven months um, to, until he's insured by fellow citizens in Syracuse, that they'll keep him safe from arrest. And he's more concerned about being arrested and returned to slavery than being arrested and standing trial for his role in the jury rescue. He even writes the governor and asks the governor to, to, to say, he says, I'll go to trial for my role in the jury rescue, but I need protection from being returned to Tennessee in slavery. And he never hears back from the governor. And then some of his abolitionist colleagues say, we're going to keep you safe. So he comes home. There were there were memorials to the Jerry Rescue. Why was that so significant? The Jerry Rescue? Uh, I think it was one of the first acts of defiance against the Fugitive Slave Law. There were others that followed. Um, some of them kind of followed the model of the Jerry Rescue. Um, it was biracial effort. Um, and it 
basically kind of in Syracuse, there's a big memorial to the Jerry rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some pride in place that they did not allow that law to be, they basically nullified this law that they thought that it was an unjust law um, in, in the town. And so it's something that's um, Syracuse citizens, you know, know of the event very well. I think um, other people should know about it too, because it was, it's quite the story. Probably the most major event before the Civil War, too, I guess. Well, there's a lot. Like I said, there are a lot of a lot of the protests against the, the fugitive slave law, I would say, are some of the most significant events of the sectional crisis. Um, and historians are really starting to recognize that. And you see a lot of books on all kinds of resistance to this law, including the Jerry Rescue. Um, of course, another big event prior to the Civil War would be the hanging of John Brown. Right. Uh, the two yeah. of them had a connection as well. Yeah, they were friends. Um, he was friends with John Brown. They worked together on Underground Railroad activities. In fact, John Brown, he wanted to try to, he had a constitution where he was trying to set up a free state um, for black uh, citizens when they escaped from slavery. And they not, at the convention, they nominated Logan to be president of this free state, but he was not president of the convention and he wouldn't, they were saying he wouldn't do it anyway. But he was connected with John Brown. He supported John Brown's um, dedication to black Americans. But after John Brown was arrested, he and his wife destroyed all of their communications and letters with them hmm. out of fear for arrest. So unfortunately, we don't know all of the ins and outs about the relationship, but we do know that they have. Let's bring this story back to Tennessee. By 1860, Logan was a pretty well-known orator. He was traveling hmm. all over New York State giving speeches, and he got a letter from his former owner, Sarah Logue. Mm-hmm. What did that letter yeah. entail? Yeah, so Sarah Logue writes to him and basically demands money from him because she's hit some financial hard times. She says, you stole yourself and our best force from us. You owe us money. Um, I can come get you if you don't give us money. I've had to sell your siblings into slavery further south you know, to help pay off debts because of what you did. And so she basically sends him a letter demanding money or she's going to use this mechanism of the fugitive slave law to chase him down. And, um, of course, he has a very, very strong response to that in which he refuses. I think you have some you know, quotes you might read from that. But he basically says, no, and just try to come get me because the people up here in Syracuse have my back. It's a letter defined. He publishes the letters. Yeah, he publishes letters in all these newspapers to make, again, a point about um, the fugitive slave law. And, so, and so this letter gets circulated all across the country in various newspapers. I want to read a section of it so you can hear the words of Logan. He writes back to her in part, you say you have offers to buy me and that you shall sell me if I do not send you a thousand dollars. And in the same breath and almost in the same sentence, you say, you know, we raised you as we did our own children. Woman, did you raise your own children for the market? Did you raise them for the whipping post? Did you raise them to be driven off in a coffle in chains? Where are my poor bleeding brothers and sisters? Can you tell? Who is it that sent them off into sugar and cotton fields to be kicked and cuffed and whipped and to groan and die? And where no kin can hear their groans to attend and sympathize at their dying bed or follow in their funeral? Wretched woman, do you say you did not do it? Then I reply, your husband did, and you approved the deed. And the very letter you sent me shows that your heart approves it all. Shame on you. Powerful words uh, for Jermaine yes. Logan. What would happen to him? Uh, tell us a little bit about the end of his life. Um, after the Civil War, he becomes involved in help aiding freedmen um, in the South. 
and he promotes the building of freedmen's schools and the erection of uh, churches and the promotion of black suffrage rights throughout the nation. Um, in 1872, he contracts tuberculosis and, and his life is cut short there. So his work is cut short. He, he's also made bishop um, of the AME Zion Church shortly before he dies. He did get um, to so he meet his mother. I'm sorry. He, he did get to meet his oh, mother yeah, he does uh, get, as well. He does. In 1865, he travels to Tennessee and he does have a reunion with his mother. Um, it's very, his, his story about that is, is very touching. He talks about how she recognized him by his walk, um, and they hadn't seen each other in so long, but he does, there is like this reunion in 1865 where they're able to, um, to, to reunite. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, there's so much more to know. I encourage our listeners to dig in to the life of Jermaine Logan. Uh, it's an important, impactful one. Uh, not just a local one, but nationally important as well. Uh, Joanne, Dr. Murphy, thank you both for uh, joining us today on History's Hook. My pleasure. We end today's episode with a quote from Jermaine Logan from his slave narrative entitled The Reverend J.W. Logan as a Slave and as a Freeman, a Narrative of Life. He wrote, When justice opens a picture gallery to display the faces of those who have done much for African freedom, we shall see many noble faces in it, which are now obscure, in our villages and towns. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at frontporchradiotn.com and wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 for a journey through time. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in Historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen meat and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I'm a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. 
Do you use Elf Bars? Old School Vapor has over 100 authentic flavors for only $18.99 each. Check out their other January sales like buy one, get one free for select Tesco bars, 25% off glass pipes and Mike Tyson's Delta 8 bites, or 50% off smell-proof bags. Go shop Old School Vapor's selection of over 200 cannabis products from brands like Looper, Torch, Hidden Hills, and more. Check them out on Instagram or Google Old School Vapor to find your nearest location. That's Old School Vapor. Do you want your business advertising to reach more listeners? Not sure how? At Front Porch Radio, we want you to reach more listeners than ever before. Let people know what you do and where to reach you, right here on Front Porch Radio. It's fast, fun, and easy to get started growing your business today. Contact James Dickinson at 931-446-2028. That's 931-446-2028. Front Porch Radio, we can make your dreams come true. One of the best things about having kids is grandkids. And one of the best ways to get them outdoors is to take them fishing. It will open up a whole new world of conversation and wonder. It's easy to get started. For more information and instructional videos to get you going, visit tnwildlife.org. Purchase your license at gooutdoorstennessee.com. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM-FM, Columbia, Tennessee.